I think that you are one of uh, the few this podcast authors you know mm-hmm. with whom it's not just a polite intervent polite interaction but even if we on details maybe a little bit here and there disagree but it's among comrades we share basically the same stance the death of god is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life where do we stand in the illusion it makes what kind of space are we invited into the material relations between people become social relations between things when we look at toasters corn and tvs we don't we see still to a large extent live in the interregnum between between worlds if you will or between paradigms not many people in the history of the world have faced that diet soap is a sublation media podcast but let's not lose time okay can i just ask you something uh, so uh, i'm almost disappointed <laughs> ironically because like where is the war gaza strip and so on You know well, we can I don't have I just decided to go with philosophical questions okay. but if you but Perfect. if we, if you wanted to start by just No. No, okay. No, no, we would lose time. You and I I think look, my stance on the war is that it's only going to be through transformation both within Israel and Gaza that there will be any end to the war. So the whatever left in in Israel that can emerge to challenge uh the authoritarian nature of Bet- Benjamin Netanyahu uh and struggle for bourgeois freedoms that might emerge will be the the the, the force that creates an end to an occupation and it will be as much in Israel as it is in Palestine yes, because you know what's the big problem i i find myself in such an absolutely ironic position now you must have heard what happened at the frankfurt book fair no tell me i did i did see some oh of your writing it's madness it was a big especially in in germany i was on cover of daily newspapers mostly attacked as anti-semitic because i did it in such a restrained considerate way but when the book fair opened Slovenia was the guest of honor so what I was the last of the inter- speakers at this introductory ceremony with German ministers and so on uh, uh, because of the war first there were four or five speakers ahead of me big german names and all of them preaching the unconditional support for israel i underline unconditional You weren't even allowed to mention the name Palestine. It's just Israel against pure terror of Hamas. So mm-hmm. I did something which was pretty tri- tricky, I think, and I'm proud of it. I wrote a text, I would be glad to send it to you afterwards, mm-hmm. which is uh, like as soft as it can be. I begin with absolutely condemning Hamas attack and giving Israel the right to defend itself which means to destroy Hamas but 
and then I go on, but look at the circumstances without relativizing the horror of this attack. Let's see which is the background. What is happening to Palestinians on the West Bank, especially where you can find on numerous podcasts, clips on, I mean, they are constantly terrorized, killed, beaten on the West Bank by set. You know the story. Mm-hmm. And then I was so careful, all the positive, to put it naively, examples, names, I quoted only Jewish figures, you know. I began with Moshe Dayan, who, when there was a small incursion into Israel, 55, 1955, from Gaza, he said, we shouldn't blame them. It's a war for them. This is their land. We claim it's ours. Like a totally different approach than the one we have today. Then I went on to uh, through uh, a number of, like Simon Wiesenthal and uh, named them. I uh, just do figures. And nonetheless, although many Palestinians were mad at me, you know, but just to mention, op, op, there is suffering there also. I was twice brutally interrupted by shouts. He even approached me on stage by some local German politician who claimed I'm supporting Hamas, I'm relativizing and so on. It was absolutely breathtaking. I went Mm -hmm. as far as possible saying, yeah, Israel has the right, blah, blah, blah. But there is this complex, I even didn't use the word, ah, this may interest you. Mm -hmm. Explicitly, after my intervention, Again, some top people appeared on stage, and one of them said, I hate two words, but and complexity. <laughs> but means Israel, yes, uh, 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 Hamas did a horrible thing, but, but the situation is complex. It was literally prohibited. And I was so shocked how, and then a Jewish friend explained it to me, what especially annoyed uh, Zionist critics is that it's very difficult to find me anti-Semitic. I was quoting only Jewish authorities. I just pointed out how the present government, Netanyahu, but also, you know, those horrible figures like being weird around Mm -hmm. him, uh, 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 what language they speak, the language, sometimes even worse than Hamas, of ethnic cleansing, this land is only blah, blah, blah. Okay, what shocked me so much was the furious attack I got from the defenders of Israel. Although, now, here comes a surprise. Uh, They couldn't reproach me for any inaccuracies, you know. Mm-hmm. So you know what was the main reproach? That that moment was a moment of silent horror. It was not a proper moment to evoke the complexity of the situation. Mm-hmm. Not, not time to... I didn't do it at the proper time. Of course, my counter-arguments were ridiculously simple. You know, that mm-hmm. first, time didn't stop. 
And on the day when I gave that speech, a speech, a quarter of an hour, 20, but it was enough. Uh, uh, Israel was already bombing Gaza like crazy, you know. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a moment. Of, but, but no, I, I, I saw, find it so strange that it's not more debated this. It didn't find an echo. Okay, we are far away in the United States because in Europe this was central event in the sense that my speech was the most debated event it marked the entire world book fair wow mm -hmm. i became uh, involved in these polemics in a totally crazy way and what annoyed me so much is that uh, this zionist there that now now it's the time for to unconditionally support israel yeah 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 uh, on west bank israel is doing straight things but it's now it's not the time to talk about it and so on all that and uh at the same time they attacked me as if you know you see anti-semitism is still alive while i was in such a marginal position of totally total oppression, my speech was interrupted. Uh, literally dozens of journalists there approached me later, and many of them, in this absolutely ridiculous way, you know, they looked carefully around. Nobody is near. Ah, I can tell you, basically, I agree with you. You know, people <laughs> were afraid to speak. And I think it's a world historical catastrophe, what is happening now there. I really think that Hamas and these Zionist hardliners are, in some deeper sense, perfectly coordinated. What one side does is serving perfectly the opposite side. For example, you know what happened in Israel till Basically, till this war, the white public civil society protest against this attempt by Netanyahu government to abolish uh, independent legal... Uh, right. Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. This was perfect for them. First, this debate, inner discord in Israeli society, which was some light of hope, vanished. And again, it's so... I'm not saying, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, that, mm. it, that Israel asked Hamas to do it. <laughs> no. But it serves them perfectly. Because now, I claim the crucial thing is happening on the West Bank, where ethnic cleansing goes on like crazy. My God, even Blinken and American government said they are very worried about killings and so on on the West Bank. On the other hand, I don't understand it. Now, with all my psychoanalytic bullshit, I'm approaching an edge or what. You know that what Israel is doing now with this pretty indiscriminate bombing of Gaza, claiming, oh, we, we want to hit only terrorists, but uh, uh, this is collateral damage and so on. Are they aware what big push this will give to new wave of anti-Semitism? Images have effects. When we see all those pictures from Gaza and so on and so on, 
it's, there will be a new wave of anti-Semitism. And of course, this is what Hamas wants. I find here a kind of a tragic vicious cycle where they are officially the radically opposite forces, but one side effectively works for the other. Well, it's important. I think it's important what you say, especially in the context of the uh, protests that were already taking place in Israel before this attack. Yeah, that was crucial. Now these protests are over. Because both the people of the Palestinians in Gaza and the Israelis have one common need, which is a need for freedom, which we're going to be discussing today. I mean, Hamas is very oppressive to the people of, of Gaza. That you don't, and there's no right to a struggle. Here, I yeah, agree. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and at the same time, Netanyahu's government is attempting to completely roll back civil liberties and basic yeah. functionality of bourgeois society in Israel. The, the protecting the rights of everyday people in Israel means helping the Palestinians in the yeah. occupation. That's but what that say was. This, you are already in this crazy situation in Europe now. It's much worse than in the United States. Mm-hmm. Just saying this already means ah, so you relativize Hamas attack, so you claim uh, that Israel is kind of a co responsible with up, ah, you are anti Semitic. It's breathtaking. I mean, you know, on the left here, the opposite is being done on, on the far left in the little circles I'm yeah. in. If I say Hamas is not a group of freedom fighters yeah. working yeah. to decolonize uh, Israel and is, yeah. you know, an authoritarian Islamic uh, group that it, we should not be supporting. Um, rather, we need to support basically civil society in Israel and yeah. uh, Gaza. I'm said, oh, you're a, a, a colonizer, you're Eurocentric, yeah. you're, uh, you're a Zionist. These are the things I'm being accused of being by the people see, around you me. See, we are here on the same wavelength, and it's a <laughs> yeah. crazy, crazy situation. You know, mm. like my good friend Udi Aloni, who is mm. as pro-Palestinian as you can be, mm. wanted to participate when they were two weeks ago in big pro-Palestinian demonstrations in Berlin, where he was. And mm. he was afraid to be there because... There were chants among the protesters, like, guess the Jews' death to Israel and so on. And he said, sorry, I cannot be there. You know, it's a totally crazy situation. On the other hand, sorry to take your time. Let's no, no, I'm, gonna, to I'm going to, look, I'm going to use the, what we just, if I Whatever you, you want. Okay, I give great. you freedom. I'm a Stalinist. You are here, the master. No problem. <laughs> okay. All right. Great. No, what I just wanted to say is that this brings us nonetheless to our topic, freedom, mm-hmm. because, you know, we should never forget that, and that's one of the points of my book, that freedom is, sorry to use this old-fashioned term, an open concept open in the sense that freedom always involves the debate of what on what freedom is. There is the struggle that is going on now is precisely 
also the struggle for the meaning of freedom. For example, to go to the United States, where mm-hmm. maybe I'm wrong, but I'm extremely worried. I hope you can correct me that I exaggerate by what mm-hmm. is going on now. On the one hand, due to his weird strategy of being totally pro-Israel and so on, Biden is now losing much of the votes, which gives a chance to Trump or even somebody else. And second thing, uh, who is that guy, Mike Johnson or who? The new Speaker yeah, of the, the House. Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. This is a nightmare. This is, in some sense, the end of open civil space. He is directly, he is directly religiously fundamentalist, he and so on. I think that United States are now really in a dangerous situation. I don't know a lot about Mike Johnson, but my understanding is that a few months ago, he was uh, part of the, this is what I paid attention to, and uh, part of the Committee on the Weaponization of Government standing up for free speech and 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 arguing with members from the FBI, of the FBI and the CDC yeah. and other and you know standing on the first amendment and saying how important our constitutional order was and and so uh that I think in any american politician the conflict even a very religious one the conflict between their religious views and their religious mm-hmm. commitment to the constitution which are both usually in in place and on the right yeah. in the united states yeah um limits their ability to like pass actual legit you know you might have some debates around issues like abortion or other culture yeah. you know yeah. but you're not going to have any any attempt to suppress the judiciary or or yeah. or or mess with the fundamental right. structure of society from the from these republicans yeah. i don't think um the uh so it's not netanyahu you know this is this is this is a an american politician uh um yeah uh i think that and as far as biden versus trump on israel i don't think it's going to be a a major issue in the campaign both no but nonetheless biden will lose a lot of his votes among blacks muslims and so on he was already losing them he was already losing them before this happened. He was there was uh, in the last election more blacks voted for uh, Trump than had previously and had than had for a Republican in many many years. The the Republican Party there's a talk of a realignment along racial or ethnic uh, lines that mm. that the Democratic Party is becoming the party of white America, um, and the Republican Party is taking in more and more ethnic minorities. Um, so I don't see the uh, the situation in Israel as ma- majorly changing anything. It might be speeding up, um, but I don't mm. know. Like, are how many uh, Americans of any ethnicity are truly moved by uh, U.S. foreign policy at, at the polls? I don't. I don't know. But I do think that. Yeah, but Palestine is different because you did have. All around Europe, you have them, but also in New York, uh, Washington, and so on, pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Okay, they were not so large as they were in some European cities. In London, at Mm -hmm. some point around 10 days ago, there were, I think, 
over or around at least 100,000 people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's no, but what worries me is something else. Did you notice how the language that Trump and other predominant now Republicans are using is the language of civil insubordination, you have the right to violate the law and all that. Again and mm -hmm. again, they emphasize this, this almost perverse right-wing appropriation of the right to, to, to rebel, to undermine the law or whatever, however we call it. And I find mm -hmm. this very worrying. Uh, you know, this is a fatal deadlock. On the one hand, as you said, you have Democratic Party moving towards a kind of a enlightened, slightly left liberal mainstream politics and all the oppositional language appropriated by... But I wanted to say something else. I'm sorry, let me return now to the big topic of freedom. Okay, yeah, yeah, you do that. What interests me is they are all for freedom. But, for example, if you were to ask a Trumpian who entered uh, on, uh, when was the 6th of January, two years and a half ago, if mm -hmm. a little bit more, who entered the Congress, who broke into the Congress, why are you here? They would have said, we are defending freedom against mm -hmm. the oppressive big state and so on and so on. If you were mm -hmm. to ask the Democrats what's their position, they would again have said freedom. So I think the key problem is this openness of the notion of freedom. Uh, of course, on the one extreme, you have this Stalinist pseudo-Marxist stupidity that you oppose so-called bourgeois formal freedom to actual freedom. I say pseudo-Marxism because Marx was nonetheless enough educated, schooled by Hegel to know that freedom is a form. A freedom which is not formal freedom is no freedom at all. But nonetheless... Here, mm -hmm. I think we should take position. What we should learn and keep from socialist, Marxist and so on tradition is nonetheless that we res should respect these great formal freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom and so on, but they become actual freedoms only if they are sustained, supported by a set of written, unwritten rules, institutional measures, and so on, and so on. And here we have, for example, a direct conflict which precisely concerns the notion of freedom. Uh, you remember when uh, Obama tried to push through his Obamacare, which was then, mm -hmm. I think, cancelled by Trump, the big Republican point against Obamacare was that it limits our freedom. Instead mm -hmm. of being free to choose your doctor, to choose the insurance, whatever that you want, state the state is doing it for you. It limits your freedom. Right. It was, there was a constitutional question around Obamacare yes. insisting that people uh, purchase in private insurance. 
if yeah. it had been if it had been publicly a public option, a true public option, it wouldn't have been an unconstitutional law, they would argue, because it wasn't insisting upon the state mandating that you that you have a private contract. I think it was something along those lines. Yes, but no, my point would have been that here, of course, I oppose this Republican vision because I think that from a more socialist perspective, uh, mm-hmm. the fact that you know, and this is what in my country, Slovenia, people nonetheless... Uh, 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 remember with some kind of a fondness from socialist times where healthcare was universal, it wasn't even a total fiasco, more or less it worked. And I mm-hmm. think you could claim that, you know, you were under socialism, at least the Yugoslav one, which was relatively well developed, functioning. Mm-hmm. Of course, you were afraid to get, I don't know, cancer or whatever horrible disease. But mm-hmm. at least you didn't have to worry about getting to hospital, doctors, and so on. That more or less functioned. That was taken. It, the, the state took care of it, which, at least from my perspective, mm-hmm. enabled you, gave you much more freedom you didn't have to worry all the time, you know, about what happened, my God, if I got cancer. It worked. You could rely. Mm-hmm. On- oh no, I'm of course I'm for social socialized medicine. Let yeah, me and the same I want to go back to I want to go back to your point about freedom and just mention okay, something to you. Now let's go to freedom. Yes. So sorry, you yes, mentioned yes. that freedom, uh, you know, it, it, properly interpreting freedom, understanding the form that it takes, and also not just the official form that it takes, but also the unwritten rules that support it, um, is what's necessary in order to be clear-headed about uh, when you're on the side of, of freedom and when you're not. Mm. So in the case of, you raised um, the January 6th uh, riots that that, that, w- that took the Capitol, um, and one of the things that I've noticed is that in the in the aftermath of that, uh, in, in, a, in a way to defend the constitutional freedoms that we have, from the Trumpian mob, mm-hmm. um, uh, many uh, people were charged with very severe crimes, despite perhaps never being inside the Capitol or certainly never acting in any way that was violent. Um, the kind of the, the resuscitation of the Espionage Act, um, the, uh, the the continuation of policies that came out of the war on terror now applied to the domestic population. This all happened in the wake of January 6th. And before that, in the wake of Trump's election, the Department of Homeland Security declared that all communications infrastructure in the United States was now under its its jurisdiction, which is why we had this long war on disinformation, which ended up in the censorship of millions of Americans online yeah, and, yeah. you know, and controlling the, the major media as well. So, uh, it is not the case that merely the Trumpian right is in, in attacking and undermining our formal freedoms, but also the technocratic left um, is uh, uh, undermining the the even the formal freedoms that we have today. So it seems to me, in those circumstances, the need for an independent left politics is more obvious and you know dire than ever. Um, no. Because go ahead. No, please, please. Right. 
No, that's it. So I'm just, I want to raise the point that whenever we worry so much about a, a, a Trump-like figure, we should always think about also the uh, technocratic response to him. Like Justin Trudeau in parliament um, uh, recently, ha- you know, was applauding an actual Nazi um, in the in the fight in, in Ukraine, then turned around and blamed Russian disinformation for the mistake. It, it um, the way in which the technocratic uh, liberal neoliberal center morphs into the uh, kind of a bureaucratic populist right should be noted. It's all the no. Uh, I thing. here I fully agree with you. Even I will try to uh, uh, radicalize this into a kind of a general statement. Although we should oppose Trumpian mob populist violence, we should, I think we even already maybe years ago or months talk about it. We should never forget that the basic problem is that the general liberal democratic order, what Fukuyama called this, the end of history, liberal democratic capitalism as the best imaginable social order, is coming to an end. And for me, although strategically, sometimes one has to make pact with liberal Democrats, when we talk about abortion rights and so on and so on. But basically, we should never forget that Trumpian populism is the, comes second, is the result of a weakness, inefficiency, not listening to ordinary people and so on, of the existing liberal democratic not only ideology, but as you pointed out very nicely, uh, this uh, 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 corporate administrative order, which also brings us to another question. Did you read, or if some of our listeners read it or knew about it, uh, Yanis Varoufakis' new book? Did you have him already? I have not had him on, but I would like to. We've been talking about techno-feudalism. And because, yes, and you know, for me, book. this is maybe he goes, he, Yanis, a little bit too fast, too far. But I think at one central point, he is right. The capitalism that is emerging now, precisely what you pointed out through this global digital control, new role of the state, combined with mega corporations and so on, Mm-hmm. Uh, this no longer fits the, the liberal capitalism the way we knew it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still have some reserves towards using the term feudalism, you know, because nonetheless, in feudalism, the personal dependency was clear. Like, you knew you were a serf and so on. No question there. Your freedom was explicitly limited. But here, in today's emerging order, something much more dangerous is emerging. Precisely when you experience yourself as totally free, you fit perfectly into the predominant order of control. For example, you freely serve the web by this, that, and so on, 
But precisely in this way, when you are doing this, when you think that you are exerting your full individual freedom, you are already controlled, manipulated by neo-feudal corporations and so on and so on. This is an mm -hmm. old story, I know. We shouldn't lose too much time on it, but it's important to make because here I agree with Yanis. It's not, it's not just that the old liberal democratic capitalism, the way we knew it, even in, in its slightly better version, social democratic welfare state, is coming to an end uh, and that the rise of populism is just a reaction to this imminent crisis. I would go a step further here. There is already a battle going on for what will succeed him, although our enemies are winning here. On the one hand, we have this Trumpian populism. On the other hand, we have, as you pointed out nicely, this uh, 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 focus on political correctness, individual choices, freedoms, blah, blah, which mm -hmm. is nonetheless totally manipulated and so on by large state mechanisms and uh, corporations. And here, would you agree or not, if I can repeat my old point, uh, mm -hmm. uh, that's my problem with cancel culture. You know, uh, I, uh, for example, when I criticize not feminism as such, but the way feminism functions in so-called developed Western societies, they tell mm -hmm. me, okay, give me an alternative. I say Iran. You mm -hmm. remember this big explosion of women's protests. Uh, uh, something incredible happened there. The death of a woman in prison triggered a process only because she was beaten there, only because she uh, refused to, to, to cover her hair, uh, mm -hmm. triggered a vast movement so that the struggle for women's rights became a focal point into which all social tensions, like all oppressed minorities, workers, and so on, mm -hmm. they condensed, they, they, they were condensed at this point. They, feminists, it wasn't even in our sense a, a feminist movement, did something incredible. They elevated feminist struggle against religious oppression into something, into a concrete universal in the Hegelian sense, mm -hmm. into something in which all other groups which perceived themselves as oppressed could recognize themselves. And this, for me, is missing in, for example, what we call cancel culture. Because, and we can go back to this, well, because this brings I, us... This is back to your book, because you, you in your book, um, you talk about the retroactive quality of universality um, or yeah. reason, or the absolute, I think is yeah. what you're discussing at that yeah. point. So, Whatever, so yeah, right. for for the women in Iran, this moment of oppression became retroactively after the fact uh, became a, an absolute 
so that uh, they could organize around and and in, in a in yeah, but, a, but uh, sorry, for, for, yes, but not absolute in a stupid sense like God and so on. It mm -hmm. became universal, rather I would say than absolute, in the sense of a struggle, which to all other oppressed groups became a universal metaphor. They could all recognize themselves in this struggle. The, what mm -hmm. makes this struggle, to use your word, absolute, is the fact that also other groups, men who feel oppressed, other minorities, and yeah. so on, recognize themselves in this struggle. This is the, what I see missing in our identity politics struggles. Well, forget me, for, forgive me and forget me uh, yeah. for being uh, uh, maybe a little simple-minded here, but I think that what you're talking about is uh, operates kind of on the level of a symbolism, a symbolic level, and to use a Lacanian yeah. phrase, maybe, yeah. but I don't mean it that deeply. Uh, and I just, I, I recall the Arab Spring, where a man in Tunisia um, who set himself on fire due to his uh, food cart being confiscated yeah. and his livelihood yeah. being uh, ruined. Uh, and then, you know, over the course of weeks, he, he died uh, and became the, he became the symbolic universal in, in yeah. Egypt uh, or no, in Tunisia and then around mm -hmm. the world. And, uh, and yet Arab Spring, we can say retroactively, was a failure. There wasn't, uh, I would say as like a, a orthodox Marxist, there wasn't a proletarian movement. There wasn't a movement to actually address the political economy of the situation, but it was only operating on the level of, I don't know, symbolic, uh, register, registering a symbolic objection to the conditions rather than actually uh, uh, working to change the political and economic I foundation. I agree with your point, but I would nonetheless qualify it in at two levels. First, okay. in Iran, precisely also this let's call it economic exploitation or however we call it, was present. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, never you should never forget that the, how do you call it, revolutionary guard or whatever. These mm -hmm. are not some half illiterate, ordinary people, fanatical fundamentalists. Revolutionary guard in Iran owns, according to most estimates, about one third of the entire social capital. They are mm -hmm. the extra strong economic force. So this absolutely was uh, a mm -hmm. background there. Uh, mm -hmm. Point two, uh, here we come to another very sensitive aspect. Yes, I totally agree with you, my God. Arab Spring was a failure. But also Syriza in Greece was a failure. I know, yes, it's true. An mm -hmm. utter a tragedy in what sense? By accepting the compromise or the pressure of the European Union, mm -hmm. the Syriza government did something so sad and paradoxical. You know, the usual situations, you have a leftist crazy government, then international capital or international agencies put pressure on a country. So then, either directly through a military coup d'etat or in whatever way, there is a right-wing government which reintroduces order into society, smashes the civil society opposition, and so on. 
Here, that's the paradox. The old standard corrupted right screwed up the economy and Syriza did this job effectively. What really mm-hmm. happened in the three, four years of Syriza rule? They, by following constructive state politics, this I mean in ironic sense, mm-hmm. they totally disbanded, lost control, or even destroyed their, I don't know how to put it, civil society support. You know, the magic of Syriza was that it wasn't just a political party. There were dozens, even more, you know, feminist groups, environmental groups, other social groups of self-organized people, and they all together constituted what we can call the blood of Syriza, what kept it alive. And Syriza even had to use police force to to dismember, to destroy its own social foundation. This was a mega tragedy. But I agree here with you. And ah, I even am ready to go a step further here. When you mentioned Arab Spring, you know, mm-hmm. I'm ready again to go to the end here. Do you remember that under the pressure of social protests, I know of two examples at least, Maybe I'm wrong. Where uh, the protests did compel those in power, military or whoever, to allow what in our naive Western terms we would have called authentic free elections, like something resembling the real free will of the people decided. I These two examples were Egypt and uh, uh, years before Algeria. But do you remember what happened? In both cases, Islamists, Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and something similar in Algeria, won the elections. Why? Because, as you would have put it, this revolutionary, under quotation mark, but Arab Spring uh, movement, people mobilizing on the streets and so on, they never really, as you would have put it, caught up with mass of ordinary workers and so on. We can now retroactively say it was really the movement of, not the rich, but nonetheless of this uh, middle class, young people, relatively educated. Students and, and the professional yeah. uh, middle class yeah. or professional managerial class. And they said class. people should speak. Okay, people have spoken and you got Muslim fundamentalists so that, and this is really a sad moment, in both cases, those who through the protests compelled the elite in power to allow something like free elections were forced to grudgingly accept that nonetheless it's better to have the military guys back in power, <laughs> which guarantee at least a limited amount of civil space of freedom than the religious fundamentalists. And we get all around the same paradox. For example, in Afghanistan, United States leaves. It's still a problem for me. Like, uh, do you know that up to the end in Afghanistan, 
Mm-hmm. After the United States Army left, there was still an Afghani army, much mm-hmm. better armed than the Taliban. Mm-hmm. But it just disintegrated. Like, why were people who knew well from the Taliban regime decades ago what Taliban means, why were they not ready to fight? But going back to this... Uh, well, I let me can ask you a question. This is something I should know because my country was occupying Afghanistan, yeah. but, but I don't really know. To what degree in Afghanistan was there kind of a functional... Uh, civil society and more importantly, like an economic life. How many people were actually working in Afghanistan? Uh, I would give you here, as far as I know, I it mm. may surprise you, but I had some links with some groups in <laughs> Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. It's something very strange happened there. Because the situation also economic was very desperate in a couple of big cities, not only Kabul, Young Afghani people, but again, not the true working class, those, you know, little education, were discovering with enthusiasm Western culture, Frankfurt School, Marxism, Western theory. I was invited there, but it was too late for me to come. So uh, 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 I am here ready to say something Terrifying for a leftist that, yes, generally American military intervention is bad and so on. But precisely in Afghanistan, they left the country and the true culprit was not Biden, but already before Trump, who started this process, making a deal with Taliban. There, United States should have left the country a little bit slowly, putting a little bit more effort into organizing civil society and so on and so on. Another reason is that uh, uh, I read books about it afterwards. You know, United States did it in their own way. They even didn't take care of how much their help, also financial aid, was lost in total corruption. For example, United States gave hundreds of millions of dollars to build outside Kabul a military base and academy and so on. After they left, journalists in that space before Taliban totally took over, went there and discovered nothing was built there. Hundreds of millions of dollars simply disappeared and so on and so on. So Mm -hmm. I think, I know of two examples. Afghanistan and, you remember when Trump withdrew American army, a little bit of it that was from Kurdish, Kurdistan area of northern Mm -hmm. Syria. I -hmm. think, I may be wrong, that even Noam Chomsky, who is not exactly in love with me, made... Mm -hmm. I hope I will not again be uh, uh, be uh, uh, accused of misattribution, but I, I remember it clearly. Even he said that there, that withdrawal was wrong because United, mil, very limited military presence gave a margin of safety to Kurds 
otherwise exposed to either Soviet, Syrian, Russian, sorry, Syrian pressure from the south and, of course, the Turkish press, pressure from the north. So that's first. The tragedy is that, yes, United States uh, uh, military intervention are bad imperialist. And again, to add another turn of the screw, precisely in those marginal, very limited cases where it would maybe make sense for them to stay a little bit longer, there they withdrew. It was uh, it was mm-hmm. uh, it was a mega tragedy. But uh, sorry, let me go to the end. Well, I, 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 I'm reminded of one. Let me say I'm reminded of uh, something that's happening in the United States now, which is that on the far left there are calls for the United States to stop funding the Israeli military and to stop funding Israel altogether. And what I've noticed is that the same call is being made by the hardline Zionist right within Israel and within the United States. So both the far left Hamas embracing mm-hmm. uh, people in the United States, I mean, they would at this point maybe want to distance themselves from from the claim that they're embracing Hamas. But nonetheless, the people who are seeing Hamas as uh, fundamentally emancipatory freedom fighters want to stop the United States from funding uh, Israel. And those who think it is time simply to uh, stand up to terrorism and destroy uh, the enemy. Um, also, the hardline Zionists also want to stop uh, U.S. funding of Israel. Even Netanyahu was claiming he wanted to phase out the military aid. Um, and it looks to me like as much as we might hate this idea that the United States intervention in the region is a constraining force and that yeah. uh, we, we exactly. have to accept because, that. Yeah, because, for example, uh, uh, for example, do you remember like already a week or two after the uh, Hamas attack? Mm-hmm. He certainly is not a leftist. Anthony Blinken, your Secretary of State, mm-hmm. said something very precise and basically correct. He said, yes, Israel has here the right to strike back and so on. But how Israel does it concerns us all. And then the problem is that they don't want to put serious pressure on Israel. For example, Blinken said, Use some pretty radical term, although nothing will come out of it, that that the United States are extremely worried by what goes on now on the West Bank. Because I think that Israel is using this new victimhood. Now they can again say, oh, we are the absolute victims, so that they interpret or misuse this as a new freedom, to ethnically cleanse the West Bank and so on and so on. And here I agree with you. United, but you know, United States were saying this. On the other hand, it's true for long years. For example, you remember, I remember how uh, was it in Obama era or before where United States were warning Israel, do not expand new settlements on the West Bank. And mm-hmm. Israel rhetorically agreed, but then 
new settlements went on. And then I remember it was a very tragic moment. I'm not sure. I think it was under not Clinton, but already Obama reign, where the U.S. government simply says, okay, Israel doesn't react to this, so we have to allow it. We cannot do anything there. They simply Mm -hmm. accepted this. You remember that moment of crazy tension between Obama and Israel when Netanyahu visited Congress, gave a speech there, but totally ignored Obama, bypassing bypassing Mm -hmm. Obama. So again, this is for me the true problem today. Uh, Some intelligent people in Israel, even in the military, now I will say something that will shock maybe you or some of our listeners. Mm -hmm. I more and more like in Israel, not so much army as Shin Bet and other secret services. Did you see the movie? Uh, The movie... uh, uh, Gatekeepers. No, I didn't see that one. Uh, check it up. You can get on pirate copy. It's an Israeli guy's documentary mm-hmm. on five past bosses of Shin Bet, the central espionage agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, sorry, inner security, who are extremely honest. They said they were warning the government, especially Netanyahu. Palestinians are suffering. We are uh, pushing them to the edge and so on and so on. And they got no reply. I mean, you know, now I will say something horrible, but you know that I like to provoke people. No, Mm -hmm. secret services are a very ambiguous sword or arm. On the one hand, they are, of course, the tool of oppression. But on the other hand, in authoritarian countries, secret services are a place where you can tell the full truth, you know, in the sense of they don't have to bullshit. They know where people's real dissatisfactions are, which is why I remember from my youth in Soviet Union and so on, even here in ex-Yugoslavia, secret services and their analysts of the analysis of the security situation they were usually on the side of radical reforms what we call at that Mm. time so those who are now in power in israel are not secret service and the military no it's much more tragic it's this newly fundamentalist however you call it religious populism and so on you know. So, you know, we've, we've been talking an hour. What I think that what I'll do is ask you one more question and then introduce you at the very end. Because okay, now we've but got, let's, we've, let me just add another thing yeah. which makes mm-hmm. me, and I wonder, maybe you know this point of mine, but I repeat it all the time. Mm-hmm. If you ask me in a very naive way, what really made me sad in the last month? Yeah. Do you know, maybe you read somewhere, I'm repeating this all the time, but it's worth repeating it. A couple of months ago, I was in London, summer school, Birkbeck College, and we had the debate on the state of the world today, the usual bullshit. And then there were two ladies from South Africa, black dignified ladies, all ANC cadre, no? And I addressed in the public debate, one of the ladies asking her a very simple question. 
I said, I read all the time in our media how South Africa is close to become a, a, a failed state, you know, like uh, 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 corruption, social order, disintegrating, and so on. What is their answer? Like, should I believe the Western media? I asked them, please tell me a different story. What? Mm-hmm. And one of them told me something so sad. He told me, as a leftist, old fighter, you want to tell me the truth? She told me it is that among the poor black majority, you know what is now more and more the predominant spontaneous ideology? You wouldn't believe it. Hmm. Nostalgia for apartheid. Because she told me that the predominant uh, quality of life standard, how much you earn, blah, 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 is now for the black majority, if anything, even a little bit lower than under apartheid. But because apartheid, uh, South Africa under apartheid was a police state, the good side of it was that there was public order. So Hmm. you were able to survive a little bit better than now, but... The same reason why the Egyptians wanted the military to rule. It's the same thing. Isn't this something so infinitely sad? What can the left do whenever... uh, This gets me to my question for you that I wanted to raise. Please. Uh, Okay, so in the last, you know, six months or so, I've been very focused and, and concerned about the way in which in the, in America, the first amendment is being eroded and, and, I've been trying to get it people is, on the... I'm not an American. Remind me, what's the First Amendment? The, the Freedom free speech. speech. Free speech, free yes. Speech. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, free speech has been eroded. And and I've been trying to get people who are Marxists to be concerned about formal freedoms, even though it isn't socialism. You know, it's not enough, yeah, but it's yeah, like we should yeah. protect it. Um, and I said, and also we need to re- realize that our organizing has to come from civil society which means that has to be a realm of freedom uh yeah. we, we can't we have to protect civil society from the state and then someone pointed out to me or i discovered that you had said in an interview once that if you had to choose between the state and civil society you would choose the state you know you're always a provocateur because uh, the, the civil society okay. was around okay. traditional religion and backward thinking and I would say, I would ask you, isn't that the case where we haven't, when there hasn't been enough development and enough proletarianization, enough people who are really bourgeois in that sense of being, you know, in, individuals uh, who can control their own destiny, at least by selling their wage labor here or there, if that, that in civil society where that's functioning, that's the realm where, where the, it, the freedom and new political expression can emerge rather than a society where you know it, it, civil society is in a ruin i mean anyway that would be my my question ah, if you follow it's a very good question and i okay i will not change my position but i will just say this that that's the tragedy of the left and i think this is also the spirit of so called wokeism cancel culture and so on even if it's part of a civil society, cancel culture mostly, mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. it work like some kind of a new oppressive power, which all that it does, and that's the beautiful Hegelian paradox, 
The motto is uh, inclusion and diversity. But all that they are actually doing is excluding. Excluding those who don't fit their definition of inclusion and diversity. So that mm -hmm. no wonder that this type of pseudo-civils, where would you locate a uh, 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 cancel culture? It's civil society state somewhere in between. I would say it's precisely part of... I would what... look at it in the Department of Homeland Security today. That's where yeah, the yeah, cancel culture yeah, is. Precisely, precisely. And that's the tragedy. I agree here with you. What I... Uh, uh, what I meant is precisely that uh, that uh, the tragedy is that the new populist right took over the very domain which was once the domain of the left par excellence, the domain of civil society. You know who, what's his name? I forgot the guy, one of the guys from New York, a friend of that guy who dropped that, unfortunately, David Graeber. Who yeah. wrote the book, What Happened with Kansas? Oh, Thomas Frank. Yeah, yeah. I have, I'm connected to him. And he, mm. I, it's debatable, he provides a perfect answer. But it's very important. He illustrates perfectly what you mentioned and what I would insist on, that Kansas was still some 30 years ago. The model of civil society, uh, uh, where uh, from down, you know, uh, uh, new uh, 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 new impulses came, uh, struggle against racism for women. Civil society was alive in the progressive sense. Now it's one of the most fundamentalist religious part where civil society is still alive, but precisely in the sense of the new political right. And I agree here with you that the worst thing is to think that the bureaucratic strength of a state is a solution here. Where I am pro-state is at another more abstract level. It's not so much state, it's something else. What, you know... I like all those uh, 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 ideas of how people should self-organize locally, blah, blah, blah. But isn't it true that at the same time now, more than ever, we need even transnational global forms of organization to fight, for example, uh, 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 global warming. It cannot be done locally because... The, uh, the places which are hit locally, like maybe we already talked about it, like two and a half years ago, the summer, uh, uh, Northwest uh, 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 North California or up, that is to say, Seattle and so on. Yeah, and Pacific so Northwest. Yeah. Blah, blah. Yes, mm -hmm. they were hit by this 50 degrees Celsius in summer. Warmer than 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 warmer than Emirates and those places we are sure, but no, no, it yeah. but it was not their responsibility. The whole circulation of air in the upper hemisphere around Northern Pole is uh, disturbed. So we need global action. And here I maybe agree with you that the st full state sovereignty should be undermined. I would just add this. 
not only from below, civil society movement, but also from above by broader transnational coalitions. What do I mean by this? We need Did a new know? party. We need a new Leninist party that would yeah, be across no, the but I will tell you something precise now, what I mean by this. Mm -hmm. Although I was always a self-conscious Eurocentric accused of it, I admit that a very dangerous part of European legacy, modern, is the idea of fully sovereign nation state. And even those who criticize like crazy these days, uh, Europe against Eurocentrism, are precisely copying this the worst legacy of European Enlightenment. Let me take you examples. I spoke with many Chinese friends who are telling me why is China now putting such a pressure on its, let's call them minorities, although in China a minority means, oh, they are just 50 million, so whatever, you know. <laughs> uh, in Uyghurs, Muslims, Tibetans, why? Because China is abandoning maybe the most precious part of their legacy, not a homogeneous nation state, but just a space for the coexistence of different cultures, religious, and, and so on, it wants to become more a full sovereign nation state. And this is spelled very clearly, but by how now, much more than in the past, Tibetans, Uyghurs, all other have to learn the Chinese predominant language. Let me give you another example. India, Modi. What mm -hmm. is he doing with Muslims and so on? It's the same. He wants to change India into a modern European nation state. Which this is where... Um this is where my country is in advance of European countries. So yeah. We are not an ethno state or, or culturally yeah. a state. We are a republic filled with a variety of different kinds of people, different states. We are constantly in battle with each other and we have a constitutional order that that's why fails I to really work. Europe, because Europe, I see as united Europe, as precisely something similar. We mm -hmm. have all the different orientations and so on, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, but again, I'll give you another example, Turkey. What, uh, what Erdogan is doing now is exactly the same, oppressing Kurds and so on and changing Turkey into a modern nation state and so on and so on. Right, it's, a, yeah. it's a mega catastrophe that, again, as I said before about the United States, precisely there where they should have maybe let its army stay a little bit longer, precisely there they pull it out. Here it's mm. the same. Okay, against uh, European legacy, but what they are keeping is sticking to is the worst part of European legacy, you know. Yeah. Sovereign mm -hmm. nation state, which is a catastrophe in view of today's global problems, migrations, uh, uh, global warming, and so on. Zizek, one final question for you, and then I'll let you go. Okay. But I, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how uh, the left has kind of lost sight of um, its core values. It seems to me that the idea of the freedom has been ceded to the right. Um, and I was reminded as I was going over this uh, in my head of something that a 
an old West Texas philosopher named Rick Roderick, a Habermasian, said oh. uh, back in 1991. Mm -hmm. He was he was hired by um, the teaching company to give a series of lectures mm -hmm. uh, on the great ideas. And he, in the middle of it, said, last week I said that Herbert Marcuse was a Norman Vincent Peale of the 60s. Today I want to tell you that George Orwell was a pie-eyed optimist. His vision of a horrible future, which, which was a boot stamping on a human face forever, is a utopian image because he assumes there would be resistance and human faces, both of which may turn out to be false. I so, totally uh, agree with Dick. That, hmm. That's a long debate that I had. I think that uh, there is, I think maybe this is why 1984 is so popular, because compared with today's situation, it's a pretty optimistic society that it depicts. In what sense? Yeah, yeah, it's terror, all that. But you still have your inner freedom, you resist, you feel threatened all the time. The problem today is that you are perfectly enslaved precisely when you feel totally free, doing what you want and so on. It's much worse what we have today. This is why, you know, this may interest you and our uh, listeners. I spoke recently, and they're very afraid to speak now. Everything is controlled. They only email me from abroad if, if they travel to Taiwan or Hong Kong, where some of my Chinese friends, you know, they said that they almost have a nostalgia for the good old pre-Deng Xiaoping communist times where control was visible, you know, like you turned around quickly, oh my God, that guy, didn't I see him already three blocks away? Is he following? <laughs> you know, oppression was visible up there, state and so on. Today, no, you are controlled precisely. I don't know, you sit at home, you watch some hardcore pornography, I don't know what, you know, and mm -hmm. it's everything is totally registered and so on. Uh, where you are controlled, manipulated by the big media corporation and so on, is precisely in what you experience as your innermost space of freedom. So I totally agree with that guy. I think that both extremes are wrong. On the one hand, the, uh, the as you mentioned, this Orwellian mm -hmm. uh, logic, which is exactly... This kind of uh, uh, old, mid-20th century totalitarianism. But sorry, we are over it. Even in China, they are over it now, largely. Mm. On, and the opposite end, Aldous Huxley, the brave new world, which is, mm -hmm. again, again wrong because it's a kind of a caricaturized picture of perfect consumerist society and so on. This also is a dream because we don't live in such a society. We live in a society full of tensions, antagonisms, and so on and so on. Listen, thank you very much for, for coming on to the uh, yeah, podcast. Com I'm now Stalin, now you address, uh, yeah, I address you as Comrade Stalin. Please, <laughs> please cut me short, do all this, you know. I'm sorry that we didn't do more freedom but let's let's we reassure did, we did freedom. The I think for the, the for the listener and, and viewer who's paying attention 
we did we did nothing but talk theory. That's my yeah, my my often people. Yeah, but that's the problem with people. People and by people, I don't mean ordinary people. I have wonderful relationship with ordinary people. For example, you know what happened to me yesterday? I took a cab here in Slovenia, Ljubljana. And we developed immediate solidarity, exchanging jokes. Our conversation was something that in a politically correct community, we would both be incarcerated and so on. But it was, yeah. no, by, uh, by primitives, I mean this uh, pseudo-intellectuals losing any space for irony. That's why I like, as you pointed out before, just let me conclude nicely, how yeah. this extremes of control, right and left, coincide, no? That's mm. why I almost had an intellectual orgasm when, I mentioned this often, maybe you know it, a couple of months ago, I think, in Salt Lake City, you know what mm. happened in some, uh, uh, it's uh, a Catholic, not Mormon, but nonetheless, it's there, a secondary school, high school, parents demanded to prohibit what? You would have thought some, I don't know, gay, LGBT, classics. No, to prohibit the Bible. They said, <laughs> Bible is too full of sex and violence. We cannot expose our children to it. So I like it how what we thought is the leftist political correctness. They are also imitating us here, you know. And... <laughs> That's the world. Was it, was it a religious family that was asking for the Bible to be banned, really? Yeah, it... but that's the paradox. <laughs> the religious Catholic family was asking for the Bible to be prohibited. It must be censored only. But, you know, I remember this from my grandparents yeah. who told me when they were young in Slovenia, it was strictly prohibited. Because uh, we were not Protestant. In Protestantism, it's a little bit better. But in Slovenia, 100 years ago, a little bit more still, it was considered a mortal sin to read directly the Bible. Oh, yeah. yeah. It has and to it... be censored so that you don't get wrong ideas and so on, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's here, why, that's why today there's a category called malinformation, which is... When you a story that is true and that the authorities will say is true, but might lead the masses to the wrong ideas. The same things. Yeah, uh, yeah. The case with the, the but Bible. Would you agree also? Just the final point with something else here, very important. That mm -hmm. uh, uh, this what you mentioned, this wonderful formula might lead the masses to blah blah. Isn't there in this worry for the masses a terribly patronizing, almost racist, hierarchic idea? That yeah. as if ordinary people or masses are primitives who will take it too literally, who will be there is such there is such a contempt for ordinary people in this. It, it gives the game away, Slovoy. It says we don't trust you. You might catch on to us. That's that's yeah. basically what that is. That it's yeah. saying we don't want you to be able to think for yourself because if you could, then you know you might yeah. you might get rid of and us. And here I agree with you. This left, which behaves like this, no wonder that it 
makes then people searching for freedom run to right-wing populism and so on. <laughs> That's right. Listen, yes. so now I'm going to read I'm going to read the your introduction as your conclusion. Slavoj Žižek is perhaps the most like famous yes. living philosopher today. His books oh. include The Sublime Object of Ideology, Less Than Nothing, The Tickler Subject, and most recently Freedom, A Disease Without a Cure, which believe it or not is what we discussed today on the Diet Soap podcast. Thank you very much for Thank for you. I'm on. grateful to you. Always ready for you. I think that you are one of uh, the few this podcast authors, you know, mm-hmm. with whom it's not just a polite intervention, polite interaction, but even if we on details, maybe a little bit here and there disagree, but it's among comrades. We share basically the same stance. I consider yes. you to be a comrade for sure, Zizek. You're among I my mean, very favorite. Very, and I'm not joking here. Mm-hmm. You know that Joe Didin, with whom I also often agree, disagree, she wrote a wonderful text on comrade as a notion. Comrade doesn't mean a friend. Comrade mm-hmm. doesn't mean also thinking. It means just that with all our differences, we share the same basic political commitment. It means just this. This is why today, in our cynical times, where either I objectivize you as just a market object, how to exploit, or Mm. on the other hand, this fake intimacy, you know, are you my significant other or not? Incidentally, if I were to be the master of political correctness, I would imprison people Instead of saying plainly, I screw her, she's my lover, or he, or whatever, <laughs> this term, significant other. In yeah. my world, you go to prison for it. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah, I Thanks agree with that. Thank much. you very, very much. Thank All right, I'll leave it there, comrade. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.